Welcome to the Strive Podcast, where we embark on a captivating journey through the fascinating realms of mind, medicine, and motivation. I'm Sai Munnam, a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania, and today marks the first episode of a new series in the podcast, Candid Conversations. Today, my good friend and fellow classmate, Robert Subtarellu, will be joining us. For my first interactions, our shared passion for neuroscience and neurosurgery research became the foundation of a friendship that has grown stronger with time. Together, we've navigated the challenges of academia, celebrated our successes, and supported each other through the ups and downs. Our conversations, both lighthearted and profound, have been a source of inspiration and reflection for me. Today, we'll be revisiting some of those moments, sharing our journey, and discussing our aspirations for the future. So without further ado, let's dive deep into this candid conversation with Robert. Hey, Rob. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for introducing me. Thank you for coming on the Strive podcast. Is it fine if I call you Rob? Because that's what I'm used to, but I can call you <laughs> Robert for the, um, for the podcast too, if you'd like. That's, that's totally fine. Rob is good. All right. So I, I think this episode marks like a slight shift in what the other episodes before have been mostly about, but I thought it would be pretty cool to get the perspective of someone that, that's going on the journey with me right now and potentially going through similar struggles, similar emotions. So I thought I thought the audience could uh, learn something from that. And we can just have a candid conversation with each other today. Yeah, I, I can totally see that as valuable. I'm happy to be a part of it. And I know we share a bunch of interests. But one of the things that really st- stuck out for me was outside of you know neurosurgery and neuroscience, obviously, we both have like this fascination for the mind and what consciousness is. How did your fascination with the mind begin? Good question. Um, I've always thought that it's really fascinating that I'm here. I have a consciousness at this point in time, and I'm experiencing things in this moment as many have before me and as as many will after me. Um, So I think my fascination for the mind really began uh, from the realization that I, you know, I am a being experiencing things at this very moment, and that might not always be the case. You talked about, you know, that you have a consciousness and something that's established is that humans in general have this thing called consciousness and it allows us to be aware of our faculties in the present moment. In your mind, what do you define consciousness as? What is it if you can describe such an abstract concept? I would say that um, for there to be consciousness, um, it's when a system, uh, when it's like something to be that system, so if it's like something to be me, if it's like something to be a bat, um, I guess it's opposite of what you'd call like a philosophical zombie, which is just a normal human where the lights are turned off. Um, so in terms of a biological definition, I, I apologize because I can't offer one, but um, in a metaphorical one, I would say that the lights just have to be turned on for, for one to be conscious. Yeah. I bet what, do you, what do you think? Because I think it's really hard to, to actually. In my understanding, um, consciousness is an intrinsic aspect of our existence. And I think Hinduism beautifully encapsulates the concept through Atman and Brahman. So essentially, Atman, it's often translated as the self, and it represents the non-material essence of an individual. And the Atman usually uses the physical body that we exist in to interact with the material world. It's like a drop of water embodying the qualities of the ocean, 
yet seemingly separate due to the physical enclosure of the body. And on a grander scale, Hinduism introduces the concept of Brahman, or universal consciousness, which is the ultimate reality encompassing all existence. It's like the vast ocean from which the individual consciousness or Atman emerges, and to which it eventually seeks to return. And so the journey of consciousness in the material world is seen as a quest to purify the Atman from impurities. And this is a process facilitated through various yogic practices and ways of living that Hinduism teaches about. And these practices aim at elevating one's own state of consciousness. And almost it aims to peel away layers of ignorance and material attachment that cloud our perception of the ultimate reality. And life in the physical realm, the, the world we live in right now, what we perceive to be reality, is known as samsara, uh, which is essentially considered a cycle of suffering due to these impurities. And through multiple lifetimes, individuals strive to purify their Atman through righteous actions. And that's why Hindus believe in reincarnation. Or it's not even a belief. It's, I guess, like the way Hinduism describes these principles. It's just the way the universe works. And we're just passive players in it. And the eventual goal is to achieve something called moksha, a state of liberation where the individual consciousness reunites with the universal consciousness. And experiencing this is, is, is in a state of eternal bliss and an unbounded experience beyond the transient nature of the physical world or our own mortality. That's also deep. And I think throughout like the past year, we talked about a lot of deep things like this and a range of topics from uh, not just neurosurgery and neuroscience, but personal things about our lives as well. Which of our discussions left the most significant impact on you? Interestingly enough, it's actually when you opened up to me about your faith and how it relates to uh, your ruminations on, on death, um, your uh, acceptance with it. I think that all of these um, discussions have really opened my eyes and provided me with a perspective that I never had regarding uh, what faith could mean to somebody and what it potentially could mean for me. So I would say that that was the most uh, impactful. I think you gave me a different perspective on death too, because it, it's something that, you know, um, I think uh, when we try understanding like the f limits of human existence being born and dying is like a common part of everyone's existence and i think seeing how different per people perceive that impending doom i guess the d-day it's it's uh interesting how we like cope with it and like i feel like a lot of people feel uncomfortable with thinking about it but i feel like someone who can conceptualize it and feel comfortable that that is a natural part of existence uh, I think that's very empowering, and uh, I got to learn a lot from you about that, too. I think it's quite interesting because a, a lot of this isn't said, but I think a lot of our, our the way we deal with death is cultural, um, like the way that I have ruminations on death and dying. And, uh, life itself, it's, it's because of where my family grew up. Um, they're from Romania. Uh, so it's post-communist Romania or communist Romania where my parents grew up. Um, so they have a very different um, perspective on death and what that means that Americans do than people from India, than people from everywhere else in the world. So um, that's, I think, growing up and, and leaving home, um, 
that's been a very interesting conversation I've had with people because you can kind of tell that, that it's kind of shaped by how how they grew up and who raised them. Yeah. From your experiences, right? Um, I wanted to t- uh, I wanted to bring up a quote from Seneca. He said, "We are more often frightened than hurt, and we suffer more in imagination than reality." How do you interpret this in the context of your experiences? So I would say that many experiences have happened over the course of my life, um, some positive, some beautiful, some stressful, some negative. Um, but I would agree that the worst have not been at the actual negative events, but rumination uh, regarding potential outcomes, regarding uh, things that have had happened previously. Um, and, you know, uh, just... I would say rumination can be worse than the actual event itself. So I would agree with your quote. Yeah. And just talking more about suffering, how do you think suffering has shaped your perspective on life? I would say that it's made me grateful for what I have now um, because of everything I see around me um, now may not exist one day. And I believe that um, the best thing that we can do, um, perhaps the most we can do is just bear witness spread love when we can yeah you are a very positive person i don't know how you do it a lot of the times but like you're just i've never seen you not provide a positive interaction for me i I think like that that's a testament to just you wanting to spread love in this world despite all the suffering that you 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 went through growing up or just your experiences that made you suffer and there's something to be said about that and you know based on those experiences that weren't so great for you, uh, where you did suffer. Do you believe that experiencing suffering is essential to gaining a deeper understanding of what a reality is? I would say that um, suffering can give you a different perspective on reality. Um, if you look at um, reality as a multifaceted object, right? Like it's just a different face, I would say, a different uh, lens to view the world with, perhaps. Um, I would say that one's reality is shaped by their experiences, probably regardless of their emotional balance. Like, uh, I'm not sure if suffering can give you a a deeper understanding of reality, but perhaps just uh, another way to interpret what's going on. Hmm. I feel like to get a sense of a greater, deeper reality, I feel like you need to go through the full range of emotions that life has to offer, you know? And so yeah, you, I could totally see I could totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you just live a very cush lifestyle where you're just happy all the time and you don't suffer, like you just feel a very limited set of emotions. I feel like that's almost limiting your your understanding of like the reality of things, because there's a reality out there that these emotions do exist, but you're almost like blocking yourself off from that reality yeah i I guess my interpretation was of a subjective reality and yours was of an objective reality i totally think that i agree that you could probably get a a better sense of objective reality if you experience the full range of emotions and if you don't you do go through hardships over the course of your life um but you know a life in which one doesn't suffer is is no less valid than a life in which somebody does yep fair and you know, we're, I guess we could categorize ourselves as truth seekers, whether it's 
exploring those various facets of reality through our emotions, through our experiences, through academia, through science, through research, through understanding. Um, so I want to talk a little more about, you know, our research and academic journey too. Um, could you give our listeners a glimpse into your typical week, balancing school, extracurriculars, and your personal commitments? Um, over the course of the week, I would say it's Anki whenever possible, yeah. uh, which is the flashcard okay. is. You cannot miss uh, Mandatory, yeah, you can't, you can't. Everyone does their own thing, but I would say most default to Anki. It's not necessarily a bad thing. So mandatory classes most days. Um, some extremely enlightening, some feel a little like a bit like a drag, but um, there's still something to be learned always. Um, and a lot of free time that I would spend at the gym, going home to visit family or arranging things with my friends, which I would say is a new habit of mine, uh, being the one who actually plans things out and asks people to go to them. Uh, but over the course of the weekends, I think that that varies depending on uh, research obligations such as conferences. Um, sometimes I go home to visit family or sometimes I go to see my girlfriend. Uh, we're in a long distance relationships. You initiating things, I think great idea. Marrakesh was a splendid option to go to. So Thank you. Um, but we've collaborated on several research projects and I just wanted to hear from your perspective how you would describe our collaborative and creative process. I would say we work really well together because um, at the very core of it, we're friends um, and we can openly communicate. I've been in multiple labs for multiple years, and I believe that the worst is when you feel like you're unable to voice your opinion. Um, and I would also say that you're an extremely creative guy with your uh, your ideas. So it's always great to have you around to bounce ideas on or just to think of new things that we can do with the already existing data. Yeah. And I never feel like a sense of competition with you. Like it's like we're collaborating to do something cool together rather than us feeling like it's me versus you where we're just doing it because we enjoy it and it's interesting. I would say that I have seen it done both ways where you can be really aggressive in terms of research output and um, you can cut corners and you can um, make enemies. Um, but I think that that doesn't need to be the only way, right? Yeah. And I've seen um, a lot of examples, you and I included, where um, genuine friendship can, can help the research process. And for the audience to get a better idea of how research works, um, after we have research findings, right, after we have these uh, results from doing the data analysis or having an idea, um, looking at the literature, collecting data, and then doing the analysis. What's the next step in sharing them with the scientific community? Um, I would say the first step is probably having them reviewed by uh, as many peers as you can, whether within your own department or um, from yeah, other institutions. Uh, and then you format an submit to a journal via a manuscript. Another option would be submitting to the conferences as an abstract, which is usually no longer than 500 words and is often a really good challenge, um, distilling all of your research, uh, research and all, all that you've done into just 500 words, I would say is a really um, good task for any researcher. So I would say definitely submit to, uh, to conferences and definitely submit your work. Uh, they have it peer reviewed as a manuscript. 
And we've we've gone on a few conferences together, some research conferences, uh, where you know we got those act abstracts accepted, and we get to share them with the broader scientific neuroscience neurosurgical community. What's the most memorable experience uh, we've had together? Um, there's actually two that come to mind. First is hearing Dr. Lawton speak for the first time in person, uh, which was incredible. And I'm sure when I'm a surgeon one day, I'll be telling everyone about it. Um, and the second thing would be stepping foot on a beach in Miami with you, because I grew up around beaches, but I've always hated them my whole life. Um, so actually going to Miami with you and going to a beach, it was probably the first time ever where I was like, wow, I really miss being near beaches. So I thought that was a, a good personal moment for me. And it's all of this research. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't know that. that. You never told me about that. Oh, I appreciate that. I had, a, I had a good time, good time in Miami with you too. If you were to chart your journey so far in med school, just your personal experiences so far, uh, which pivotal moments would you highlight? I would say that the most pivotal for me was probably anatomy, which when you first get accepted to med school, even before that, you know that um, you're going to have to deal with this cadaver and uh, to get through anatomy. And for a lot of people, it's uh, intimidating or it's uh, nerve-wracking. Um, for me, I, I felt a lot of excitement going into it um, and then grappling with the reality of the situation um, with uh, all the coursework you have to do at the same time. I thought that was just, a, I guess, a pivotal moment for me, um, not necessarily just in med school, but growing up and becoming a, an adult. Uh, it's interesting that you you thought uh, anatomy was a pivotal moment. I th I thought it was too, just because like I I was just fascinated by the arteries when I saw them. I thought like just the blood vessels everywhere around the body were just so cool, and how they kind of tell a story, and they're like feeding into like different organs, and like they provide like a network of highways for blood to like travel through. I just thought it was beautiful, and I think that that was a pivotal moment for me too to just experience that. Also, have the privilege to do like live anatomy dissections with cadavers um, for, with people who donated their bodies to medicine. That was really cool. Okay, uh, I think it's a milestone. And I think that as we go into a virtual world, I, I hope it's something that people can still uh, utilize moving forward. I'd also say like another pivotal moment for me, it was like more of like a, it happened progressively over time throughout first year of med school. But I think just learning how to balance and prioritize um, it was very difficult for me to say no. Uh, initially, like I would just want to like take on so like everything because, you know, I went to University of Georgia. Um, like you would have to actively find opportunities, and even if you found them, like you have a very small chance of actually being able to do it right. And then when I came to Penn, it's just you're bombarded with opportunities, and they're all super cool opportunities, and you know you're like you're interested in so many things, pulled in like so many directions, and like that almost created like a sense of chaos in my mind about what exactly I was doing with my intentions, with my priorities, what, what I wanted to get out of med school. And so I think the first year, like throughout the, my time during my first year of med school, it was just me trying to figure out what's something I truly am passionate about to the core and like, what should I prioritize and like, how should I move forward with the things I prioritize and being intentional with those things once I do fully commit to them, you know? It's still, a, it's still a challenge. I mean, every day you're bombarded with new opportunities. 
And I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. But, um, but you know, it's always important to reevaluate, to take a step back and ask, why am I doing the things I'm doing? Yeah, I think summer break, um, you know, our med school provides ample time for summer break, which I really appreciate because it just gave me some breathing room, you know, um, just to figure out what exactly I wanted to do. Also, just reconnect with people and with myself and understand the values and principles that I want to carry forward into like the next year uh, that I want to live by and um, function on a daily basis by. And so I think the summer was a very big pivotal moment for me too, in terms of just trying to figure myself out again and reinvent myself, you know? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, med school is four years, right? But they divide it in such a way that it feels like um, when you get good at something, it, it stops and you're forced into the next phase, so to speak, right? So four years can go by pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how the first year went by this fast. Yeah, so, yeah it's, it's like that. So our first year and a half in med school is spent doing preclinical stuff. And for the audience, preclinicals is just, you know, like the, the theory of the medical theory that you learn in the classroom we have some clinical components to it as well, but it, it mostly consists of just um, learning the basic sciences and then moving on to uh, various topics in medicine like um, hematology, pathology, microbiology, um, uh, neurology, psychiatry. Uh, we did cardiology for last block and then dermatology, I guess, for a week. And we're on renal right now. And so it's just learning about the theory behind these various disorders and physiology and pathophysiology. And then after that, um, starting in January, we're going to go on our rotations and that's where we'll actually rotate in clinic and see patients. And I feel like we'll actually feel like med students then because <laughs> we'll actually be in the hospital and we're going to do things that we kind of came to med school to do in the first place. Right. And as we go forward, what challenges or milestones do you foresee along this journey? I believe that um, clinical rotations will be a wake-up call um, in some of the same ways where we've had to, or we've had time to reflect um, and make choices regarding what we want to spend our time doing. I think that clerkships will limit the amount of free time we have, so it's going to be even more important to uh, be very intentional about our activities outside of school, uh, because I think the window of time that you have um, after class just it's way, way smaller. I also think that step two will be difficult because it's going to be one of the first times you'll see a lot of peers fret about grades, um, especially those who want to do a more, uh, more competitive specialty. I do see my roommates who, um, they're all a year older than me in medical school. And I think over the course of this year, I've seen them all grow a lot, um, especially regarding their clinical knowledge. So Part of me thinks that it's going to be okay. I guess it's a testament to our conversation about how suffering kind of provides a deeper look into reality and yourself. So, yeah. And, you know, we're, we're both interested in neurosurgery. It's known for its demanding nature and the sacrifices it entails. Um, what drives your passion for this field? That why will probably come in pretty, pretty handy when shit really hits the fan and things get really difficult and we have to fall back on that why uh, to make meaning of all the suffering that we go through. 
that's a that's a good point, and I think it's always going to be interesting to go back and reevaluate your why, uh, because perhaps it'll change. Um, as I think my why has changed uh, over the course of my life, uh, there is, in my opinion, uh, simply nothing more incredible than operating on the seat of consciousness, and I think that one should sacrifice a lot to get to that point. I think that the uh, sacrifice or suffering is almost essential um, for you to have that privilege. Yeah, and I, I don't think it should be any other way because if someone trusts you and is so vulnerable with letting you open up, literally the seed of consciousness that you, like, like you said, um, and be at such an intimate level with, with something so essential to an individual's sense of being right um i think that suffering is does have meaning and purpose and uh, i've talked about it in previous episodes um i think for me too my, my experience with my grandpa and how his consciousness despite it being stripped away slowly being diminished he still had it in him buried deep in his consciousness and mind to recognize me because of the love he had for me and um I, I don't I, I still think about that experience we've talked about it so many times too and I think that's really my why when another family's going through a similar situation with their loved one and you know you can potentially make a truly tangible meaningful change in their life with something that you had to suffer through to uh, I guess reach a deeper level of reality to form an understanding of a craft or skill or technique that can provide that, that can come in handy to cure maybe not cure but to treat and maybe reinstate the faculties or the consciousness that once was in a person is I think it's a very privileging thing to do and it's it's very beautiful too yeah and I think a lot of the job is, is buying time which I think is invaluable right yeah um, time spent with loved ones, uh, I think there's nothing else more important. So being able to provide families uh, with that time is something that I would, I would definitely train most of my life to do. And I feel like, you know, uh, like I guess like to get to med school, it requires a certain level of discipline in itself. But as we go through this process, I feel like with our time being more limited, us having more responsibilities and obligations uh, to our patients, to um, working in the hospital. Uh, we have to think about discipline much more and, you know, just being locked in and getting the things we have to done. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what does discipline mean to you and how do you incorporate it in your daily life? Um, I would say the discipline is the art of making the hard choice um, when you're provided with two choices. Uh, and I would say that it's a skill that you have to train, um, whether it's one more rep at the gym or um, stepping up and volunteering to do a book a lunch talk when uh, nobody else wants to, right? I think that there's always little opportunities throughout the day um, to enact discipline. And I think that over time, uh, if you make enough right decisions or enough hard decisions, uh, you get better at it and uh, your life improves because of it.
yeah i'd also add that it's also a repetition thing i think doing something that you don't necessarily want to do but you have to do over and over again regardless of your emotional state um i think it definitely is a skill that that you develop and it's also something that you can also let go of if you don't practice it and so i think it's very important to have a lead a very disciplined lifestyle and i think right now we can give ourselves some grace but i think moving forward as we get busier and busier being very intentional with our time and being disciplined with what we want to get out of the time we allot or invest into various things we're, we're passionate about is very important yeah i'd say so too and amidst you know all this hustle and bustle and working and studying for exams and extracurriculars and balancing your personal obligations and requirements and family requirements. How do you relax? Um, I would say that sometimes I go to bed early, <laughs> which I never often do. But uh, when I do that, I'm feeling more well-rested throughout the entire next day is usually a great thing. Um, and the second big thing I do is call family. Uh, because you you spend like 18 years with uh, your close family, right? And then in some sense, you have your own life now and they have their lives. And sometimes it's pretty separate. So just hearing about the trials and tribulations of somebody else's life can be pretty relaxing in terms of um, maybe you can provide some advice, maybe you can provide some comfort. Uh, and I think that, that for me goes a long way, just talking to family members. Yeah. And I think especially because, you know, you're not from Philly and I'm not from Philly either. Just talking to my parents and family, it kind of just grounds me in my roots, my values and what I stand by too, what I was raised with. Just because I feel like it's, I get so lost at times with just all the stimulation going on around me and so many differing viewpoints and um, people coming from different backgrounds. And I think that's beautiful that we can interact with all of that but i think remembering where we came from and like staying true to that the values we were raised with is also important and i think talking to my family really like grounds me in those yes it is quite interesting because in an ever-changing world it's one thing that can stay uh, constant and uh, 300 years ago that wasn't even possible to, to just call up your family okay. yeah so I yeah. think that uh, we live at a very interesting intersection of uh, society where you can do that. I think that um, everyone should make the time to do that very often. From like the neurosurgery podcast, right? I've, I've heard Dr. Dr. Wang talk about how he doesn't w believe in work-life balance, but he w believes in work-life integration. And I thought that was very interesting because there's not any, there's not necessarily a balance at all times. You know, I feel like you have to prioritize certain things over others it could be for like a few days or a few weeks but at times there's no not really balance or we don't necessarily adopt balance and that the situation might not even call for balance so i just wanted to like see what your viewpoint on that was and how do you see the balance between professional ambition and personal well-being i mean yeah that's very true i think that as a working professional you can probably get away with um a really hazy uh, line between work and, and life. Uh, I know people in our class who don't start studying for exams until the day before. So 
I would say they certainly have a work-life balance. Um, and I think that it totally does exist um, at our level of, of training and education. Um, for me, uh, in order to maintain this balance, I think daily reflection regarding my priorities and my trajectory is really important. Um, asking myself a few questions every day, do I still want to do this? Do I still want to do this for the right reasons? And um, am I taking the right steps to get there? Um, I think these are very important questions regarding your trajectory in life and your professional ambition. But at the same time, you have to realize um, I am alive. I should enjoy this journey as much as possible. Um, and also thinking, if I wasn't doing this, what would I be doing? And would I be as happy? Um, I think that's important. But I always come back to the same to the same answer, and I think that's a good sign. That's good. And I want to I want to do this episodes like this as we go through our journey to see if our views about things or new realizations we made um, could be of use to the audience. But uh, just to just to wrap up the podcast for today, uh, the episode for today. What excites you most about the future? I would say what excites me most about the future is seeing how the relationships I have evolve um, with close friends um, and my family. Uh, and also seeing what new professional relationships develop. That does sound pretty exciting. Well, Rob, my friend, my classmate, my fellow future colleague. I guess we're colleagues now too. My fellow colleague, thank you so much for having this candid conversation with me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.